Morning, Bethel. All right, so our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. It's 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Amen. You may have a seat. Morning, everyone. All right, so if you're not there yet, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we're going to continue in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 10. So you can find that probably just one page after where Tyler read, because <laughs> he read the end of last week's passage. So same page, 957. So um, while you're turning there, I want you to think with me here. Uh, the, the world is full of cautionary tales, uh, both in real life and in tale life, I guess, you know, kind of made-up stories like, uh, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. I guess the original version, both Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother got eaten. So it wasn't so... Um, user-friendly earlier on, but the whole point was it was a cautionary tale. Don't talk to strangers, especially ones with big teeth. Um, so the world is full of cautionary tales, and yet history continues to repeat itself. So any of you familiar with this dynamic personally, in the lives of others, maybe both? the things that you were the most critical of when you were younger in people around you, have you seen yourself fall into any of those same patterns? So this can happen in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it happens where you see marriages when you're younger that are kind of cold and mere cohabitation and Nothing to talk about marriages. You know, you see those people at the restaurant and they sit there the whole time and maybe exchange like three words. I'm never going to do that. And then 20 years later, you got nothing to talk about. Or maybe you had this like really grumbly negative person at work that just was so not fun to be around. And then however many years later, grumble, grumble, negativity, you know. Or maybe fearful, anxiety-ridden person whose horizons keep shrinking from fear. And, oh, just kind of roll your eyes and then you start giving way to fear and anxiety and all the what-ifs. And you kind of want to shrink things down a little bit to keep it more manageable and secure. Maybe an aloof, too busy to listen or play parent. I'm never going to be like that. And then it happens. How about some angry hair trigger might, might have been your parent? And then all of a sudden, same thing is going on with you. So what's going on there, you know? I'm not sure of all the dynamics, especially because each individual case has its own unique factors, but one, one thing can certainly factor in. We are self-righteously prideful. Okay, it's, it's kind of hardwired in. And when we criticize and despise those who make these errors or have these characteristics, I would never do that. Do you know what's happening when you do that? The seed of pride is sown that can trip us up as the vine grows and eventually entangles us and we fall. You see that? The very thing that issues forth in criticism and, and ugh, can't, 
I'd never do that. I'm not going to ever do that. Is the seed of pride that can be your downfall down the road. So cautionary tales. Um, We make some of the same mistakes that we see others make, mistakes we never thought we would make. Um, I heard some very sobering statistics shortly after Beth and I got married. Okay, So we got married in 96, and in a conversation with a counselor type that um, particularly dealt with pastors and missionaries who had failed morally, he shared some statistics with us, and it was incredibly sobering. Talk about a cautionary tale. We had just gotten married, and I was heading into ministry preparation, heading, heading into seminary that next fall. And this guy said, I've been, I've been doing this kind of counseling ministry for 30 years, focusing on moral failure among pastors and missionaries. And I've had, on, on average, one case per month. That's a lot of wreckage. And then he said, every single guy has been between the ages of 45 and 55, except one. He was 44, and he got married at 19. So again, the statistics, whatever. I'm not trying to make a point about midlife crises or whatever. What I am saying is, I was 22 and heading into ministry, and I had just gotten married. And it was like, whoa, some of the hardest years of life and marriage could be, at that time, 20, 30 years away. It's really sobering. Cautionary tale. So it had a profound effect on me and on Beth. Um, So we're not the first ones to run this race of faith. Okay, Those who don't know history are bound to repeat it. You probably heard that proverb before. So we would do well to pay attention to those who've gone before, both the good and the bad, those who've wandered off to their own destruction and those who've finished well. Even those who have finished well after stretches of foolish wandering, times of being tempted to throw in the towel, aren't you glad that guys like King David and Abraham and just real people with messy lives made it? Gives hope for us who are prone to wander. So, the series in 1 Corinthians is called Cruciform Living. Um, And the whole point of the book of 1 Corinthians, the whole point of this series, is that the Christian life has got to be shaped by the cross of Christ. We are bombarded. We're kind of breathing in propaganda from the world all the time to shape our souls in the image of the values of the world around us. And we need the Bible so that we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? We need the gospel. We need to hear about the cross so that the cross is at the center, so that Jesus shapes us more than the world around us. And then chapter 10, specifically this morning, is all about cruciform running, okay, metaphorically speaking. Because in chapter or in verse 14, it says, flee from idolatry. So there's one kind of running that we need to do. And then, as we see the chapter develop, it's clear, and Tyler was praying along these lines, that we should not just run from idolatry and temptation, but that we should run to Jesus, because he's got the grace that we need for this race of faith. And as we run to him, then we're going to follow him and run after him because he's the pioneer. We should lay aside everything that weighs us down and sin that so easily entangles and run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. And when we do so, it will be to the glory of God and the good of those around us. So that's kind of the summary of where we're heading here, okay? What we need to kill, stuff we need to run away from, the stuff that the cross needs to kill is pride and selfishness. That stuff will trip us up in the race of faith. The consequences can be dire, so we dare not take these warnings lightly. But just so you know, the point of all the warnings is not just to kind of like beat us down and make us feel hopeless. No, it's to run away from the stuff that'll kill us and run to Jesus because he's got life and strength and grace to run this race set before us so we can finish well. So first, we're going to look at these cautionary tales. We dare not take the warnings lightly, so let's look at verses 1 to 12. There's an outline in your bulletin, or you can follow along with the uh, slides here on the screen. So first off, cautionary tales from um, biblical history. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So he's going to give illustrations from the life of the Israelites. Um, but this is like, wait, what in the world? Baptized into Moses? Like, we could get easily tripped up here in some of the minutiae. Okay, we've got to stay in the car. <laughs> this is a driving tour through 1 Corinthians 10, not a walking, you know, like turnover every leaf. We don't have time to do that. But this could be a little weird. You could get hung up on this Moses thing. So just quickly, it means they became Moses' people, okay, through the Exodus. Of course, they were ultimately Yahweh's people. He brought them out. It was his mighty hand. But the mediator, the deliverer that God sent to redeem them from slavery was Moses, right? And this participation in Moses was the result of coming out of Egypt, following the pillar of fire and cloud, and ultimately passing through the waters of the Red Sea, right? So redemption out of Egypt, then baptism, quote-unquote, through the Red Sea, just like it is for us, right? So go and make disciples, baptizing. All right, verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. There's all this eating and drinking stuff going on in chapters 8 to 10, so... These are very very wisely chosen examples from biblical history. They ate the same spiritual food, manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Again, we could get really tripped up here. There was some tradition that um, the Messiah was... You know, this rock that followed them, there were two separate instances where water came out of the rock. And so Paul kind of piggybacks on that and says, well, ultimately, all of these blessings come through the Messiah. And so the point is, they were blessed. They were miraculously blessed. They saw crazy miracles and signs and wonders. Nevertheless, you see it, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do you remember what Paul said? In 927, the passage Tyler read, I don't want to be disqualified. Okay? This is all one big section, chapters 8 to 10. So they were overthrown in the wilderness. So eating and drinking the grace of God doesn't mean that you're okay, kind of automatically, magically inoculated. There is a big difference between grace that's all around us and grace that takes root within us. So those Israelites in the wilderness, man, there was all kinds of grace that came up, hit them in the face, left, right, and center. But they didn't believe. And they fell. So these things, verse 6, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Cautionary tales. Okay, so again, I'm not going to go back into the Old Testament context in each of these examples. You'll see that he brings up multiple scenarios from Israelite history. I'll just give you the reference. You can look it up later. I'll summarize it quickly. Um, you can find these in a good study Bible if, if you don't get them all down, okay? So, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire or crave evil as they did. That's an echo of Numbers 11. Remember their strong craving for meat in the wilderness? Same thing. And they paid for it. There were consequences. They fell in the wilderness as a result of it. Many of them died. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. Okay, you're going to hear this refrain, as some of them were, multiple times. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to Exodus 32. Remember, Moses is going up the mountain for the Ten Commandments. He takes a while. They're thinking, maybe he's not even going to come back. We don't know where he is. Uh, Aaron, why don't you make us some gods that will lead us on? Okay, give me your jewelry. And they fashion the golden calf. So it's a weird combination of worship of Yahweh and pagan worship, kind of like a syncretistic thing. And it leads to pagan revelry. Okay, they rose up to play as a euphemism. They weren't playing ultimate frisbee and freeze tag, folks. Okay? It was more like Mardi Gras late into the night. Which leads well into the next example and even the issues in Corinth and our issues. 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Here's another example. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That is a reference in Numbers 25 where there was sexual infidelity with Moabite women by the Israelite men. And there were dire consequences. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, they tested the Lord. They were just so like angry that they're out in the wilderness. Why did you bring us up to die in the wilderness? They said, we hate this, basically. And they were destroyed by serpents, remember? And then Moses put the bronze serpent on the, the pole, which ends up getting picked up in John 3, because Jesus is like that serpent. We look to him, lift it up on the cross, and we can live, we can be saved from our sin and our idolatry. Good news, even there, echoed. Verse 10, nor grumble, another example, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. You can look at Numbers 14, you can look at Numbers 16, and even some other places for this grumbling. And it's interesting that the destroyer is the one who is mentioned to have destroyed because the destroyer actually isn't, you know, the destroying angel is not actually referenced in the Old Testament with this, this scenario in Numbers 14 and 16. But the whole point is, they talk about plagues on the people of God. Who brought the plagues on the people of Egypt? The idolatrous people of Egypt. God's agent, the destroying angel. And basically, God's people were acting no different, and so they also suffered the plagues. Sobering stuff. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but it's not just history for history's sake, it's not just informational. They're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Time is short. This is serious. We're not playing with a net. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So do you see the big picture of 1 to 12? These Israelites, they ate and drank of the grace of God. Corinthians, as you have and as we have. They also ate and drank in idolatrous ways, and the Corinthians, some of them had. And we can be in danger of idolatry as well. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul's warning the Corinthians, and he's warning us. Okay, We can be in danger. We can be the beneficiaries of tons of grace and mercy. And it doesn't actually mean that we're changed deeply from the inside out. How many kids grow up in the church and there's tons of grace all around them, but it doesn't sink in. And we grieve that when it displays, the reality is displayed down the road. So we should take heed of these examples. Take heed lest you fall. Your pride could lead to a fall. Their example is for you. It's for me. It's for us. Richly, abundantly graced people can fall. So we need to humbly receive this warning. Do you think you couldn't fall? I need to be really careful here because I'm not saying that a genuine believer can lose their salvation. I'm not saying that. The Bible makes it really clear. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. But how does a genuine believer persevere? How does a genuine believer run the race and finish well? Well, guess what? When they hear warnings it's like a rumble strip on the side of the road and they wake up and get back on the road. But if you hear warnings and you just are like, better to ask forgiveness than permission, you know, like hardness of heart, maybe it proves that you were not real in the first place and crash. Paul, Paul said, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. So he beat his body and made it, made it his slave so that he wouldn't be a hypocrite. I mean, you think about how Jesus warns in Matthew 5. He's speaking to his disciples and he says, you know, you've heard it said that, you know, don't commit adultery. I say if you look at a woman with desire for her, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So be ruthless about sin because it's better to go into eternity 
having taken violent action against your sexual sin than to not fight and go to hell. That's a pretty sober warning. We shouldn't mute it with some kind of you know, theological gamesmanship or something. We should take that warning seriously. And if you have a soft new heart, you go, oh, keep me, Lord. Like, I know my proneness to wander. Temptation's all over the place. Help me to fix my eyes on you. I need to take, like, ferocious, violent, fight the good fight of the faith action here in response to temptation. So are you playing with fire? Is anybody in here playing with fire? Take heed, lest you fall. You need to hear these warnings. The Israelites are exhibit A. They saw signs and what I mean, imagine seeing what they saw in Egypt. Just multiply the signs and wonders, all 10 of them. And then imagine seeing the pillar of fire. and cloud. Imagine seeing the Egyptian army just totally wiped out, walking across on dry ground. Are you kidding me? And afterwards, it's like, woohoo, Exodus 15, they're singing. They're, they believed, believed God. And then they fell in the wilderness. Anybody can believe God when your enemies just got wiped out. Then let, things get hard and their true heart gets exposed. They are an example to us, a sobering one. They were blessed, and they ultimately were cursed. So we shouldn't say, it couldn't happen to me. It's a common sentiment, as if you know, it's not possible for us to, to fall. No, take heed lest you fall. That's a real warning. It should be like a splash of cold water on a sleepy soul. Okay? I, mean, I think it's exactly what the Lord is talking about in Isaiah 66 too, when he says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. He's not trying to keep us in the corner like, oh, don't hit me with a lightning bolt. It's, I'm so aware of how weak I am and how the temptations, I could so easily fall. I need thee every hour. I need your grace. I've seen how these Israelites fell. I've seen how some other people in my life have Fallen, Lord, if, if you don't keep me, I'm going to make shipwreck of my faith. I need you. I need your grace. Keep me. I'm so glad that you who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it because if it was left up to me, I'd make a wreck of things. So drifting is a real threat. Love growing cold is a real threat. I mean, this, this passage chills me. Matthew 24, 12. Jesus speaking of the end, things could go from bad to worse. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But he gets turned up and the love grows cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, Hebrews 3, we need to take care. Take heed lest you fall. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He doesn't say we will share in Christ if we hold fast. He says we have come to share if we hold fast. Real faith is transformative. And real faith sticks even through the ebbs and flows and challenges and valleys. And yes, of course, but it really does stick. So sobering. And so ugh, could produce a lot of insecurity in us, right? But what comes next is just what we need even though uh, half of it is a little bit of a step on our toes sort of thing. So you and I, we're no circumstantial snowflakes, okay? But God is uniquely faithful. What do I mean by that? Well, most of us would probably mock the syrupy message that's out there sometimes. You know, you're a snowflake. I'll exaggerate for the sake of the point, you know. You're a snowflake. There's no one else like you. You're unique and special and one of a kind, okay? Like... Okay, we can mock that. You, you probably know that self-esteem is not what we need. We're pretty naturally inclined to think pretty highly of ourselves 
at least of our rights and entitlements. In fact, self-pity is actually wounded pride because we think we deserve better. What we really need is God-esteem and we need confidence that God loves us and is in covenant with our soul. That only comes through Jesus, right? But it comes through Jesus. We need it. And he wants us to have it. But see, one of the ugly corollaries of that kind of snowflake thinking that can kind of sneak in the back door on us is that my struggles are unique. Nobody knows or understands my struggles. They are one of a kind and unique. And the underlying thought is that, if you had this happen, rise up in your own heart, somebody respond to you this way, nobody can speak into my life with advice or counsel. We stiff arm. And Paul just wants us to wake up from that enchantment. And he does it by humbling us, but also giving us hope. So look at verse 13. We know this verse. We oftentimes lift it out of context, but we need to see it here in the context. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It's human. It's normal. So what's going on in the context? Well, in the context of chapters 8 to 10, the Corinthians are in a Greco-Roman world where the temple, the temples, lots of gods, right? In Greco-Roman world, Every trade guild had their patron deity god. You know, so if you are a metal worker or you're a woodworker or you're a fabric, you know, like a clothes making person, <laughs> whatever, you know, like everybody's got their patron deity. So you go to the temple of your patron deity and you offer sacrifices so that your business will go well. So if you're in the guild and you refuse to sacrifice and participate in the worship of the God, you could make that God angry and bring us all down. Can you imagine the pressure that could be on the lives of some of those newly converted Christians to get in that temple and not make us think about this? Make your sacrifices. Hey, hey there's no such thing as an idol. I'm free in Christ. I can do this. So we'll talk about, about that more but the leverage on their souls, I can't not do this. I can't not participate in this stuff. I mean, I lose my job. Lose my entire social relational network. I can't survive without this job. You have no idea. I think there can be some similar leverage to be people of integrity in our job place or you know other competitors are cutting corners or or whatever and we've just got to follow suit or we're not going to be competitive or there's something going on at work that if you blew the whistle you might lose your job and so you just kind of close your mouth and paul says you are not alone you're not unique in this struggle and it certainly applies much broad much more broadly than this but it's the case here relative to those issues the whole point is god's able to make a way forward He's faithful. The, the don't be anxious stuff, your father knows what you need, seek first the kingdom, still applies in Corinth. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to be totally free from the temptation and pressure anymore. It doesn't say that. It says you'll be able to endure underneath it. So in other words, your situation, snowflake, <laughs> come on, just is not so special. But God is especially faithful. I, listen to this. There's a little gem hidden in the middle of 2 Peter. You can look it up later because it's in a context that's a little confusing or whatever, but just, just savor this. Ready? 2 Peter 2.9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Do you believe that? That's good news. Did you hear that? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But if we're honest with ourselves, we push back on this, don't we, all the time? Has anyone ever confronted you on some sin pattern? What's your first impulse? 
oh, thank you, my brother. Thank you, my dear sister, for, you know, serving me so kindly this way. The first thing is like defense. Like, oh, you? You're going to say, like, how about the pot calling the kettle black? Like, you might not say it. You put this little paste, this little ground in your face, and, oh, thank you, you know, and then you have this mental conversation, and you tear them apart. Have you ever been found out or caught? What's the mental narrative? It might come out. It might just stay up here. Excuses, rationalizations, justifications. I mean, perhaps it happens when you hear the application of the Bible in a sermon. You could do this kind of thing, or a community group discussion, or a Bible study, or whatever. And what rises up, you have no idea. Which, okay, sometimes Christians are insensitive, and what I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about God's word intersecting our soul, and we don't like when it touches a nerve. We love, we are so prone, it's so natural to us to explain away our sin. I was tired, I had re- had really hard day at work, and she didn't, da, 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 and he wasn't, da, 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 and like, oh, that explains it. <laughs> You're not culpable anymore. Now, sometimes, yeah, you need to explain something because there really is a misunderstanding, but we have got to stop trying to dance the blame away. Like, quit the dance and hit your knees. You remember Saul and David? I mean, it's such a clear picture to me. Saul, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. He doesn't do it. You know, we're going to keep some of this uh, prime cuts for dinner tonight, you know? And Samuel comes and says, yo, what's the deal? You didn't, well, you know, it was really, and Saul's just like moving and shaking and baking and dancing. And what happens when David commits adultery and indirectly murder and horrible stuff, even in some senses it might seem worse than what Saul did, Nathan confronts him and what does he say? I've sinned against the Lord. And he writes Psalm 32, Psalm 51. You know what? God gives grace to the humble. We, we have got to stop indulging ourselves. We have to stop rationalizing and justifying and blame shifting. If you think about it, if you dance around and refuse to own your sin, then you're saying that the problem is out there, not in here. And if the problem is out there, then God or whoever else needs to fix that other person or your circumstances Nothing needs to be fixed in here, so you don't need any grace. So you're not going to get any. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you see how dangerous that is to downplay and rationalize and minimize and justify and blame shift and all that? You're basically, I I don't need this grace stuff. Just turn off the faucet. Yeah, it's humbling to own our sin, but it opens the faucet of grace to pour into our lives. So, no more excuses. Hey, we need to help each other in this. We need to, we need to work on this. We need cruciform living. We need to put to death those impulses to stiff arm the Spirit of God and places where God wants to touch on the nerves so we own our sin. The temptation also is never too much. We can't, we can't blame other people for our sin or our circumstances or whatever. I love this advice that C.S. Lewis gave a Mr. Pittman in a letter in 1958. He said, the great discovery for me, so I, I don't know what the front burner stuff is for you, sexual temptation, food temptation, media temptation, I, I don't know what it is. But the temptation can seem so strong that we can't... And he says, the great discovery for me was that the attack does not last forever. It is the devil's lie that the only escape from the temptation is through yielding. After prolonged resistance, it will go away. 
What seemed yesterday impossible to turn one's mind from will today be utterly unenchanted, insipid, and tedious. He will never tempt you beyond your ability to bear it. Careful qualification here. Does the Lord ever give us more than we can handle? Oh, yeah. Regularly. It's how he shows us our need and his strength. It's how his strength is made perfect in our weakness. But does he ever tempt us beyond our ability with his grace and strength to resist? No. We, we need the discipline of believing that, especially when the heat gets turned up. We can't trust our feelings on this one all the time. Our feelings are going to lie to us all the time. I, I don't know if I've quoted this yet, but I've been like, I've got this like sermon brewing for the last couple of years that, that was kind of catalyzed by, I don't know when it'll come out, but anyway, this guy Eric Tonis is a professor out at Talbot, um, Biola Talbot School of Theology in California. He, I ran across this quote, and man, I've been pondering it on and off ever since. He says, there's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. Start pondering that one. It has a million applications. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe, in spite of what I feel, isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. So when your emotions run counter to this verse, what's going to win? We need to crucify those sentiments and doubts and the resistance to this truth, this promise about the faithfulness of God. Cruciform living. Following Jesus, the crucified one, as our Lord. We've got to stand with God on this one and trust him. Even if everything in our heart and our gut is crying out against it, we need to crucify those things and stand with this promise, stand on this promise. It was true for Jesus in the wilderness and even in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done, even though he wanted the cup to pass if it was possible. It's true for him, it's true for us. So if you and I yield to temptation, it is not God's fault. We shouldn't blame him. There is always an escape hatch. There is always an escape route. We can always flee. Point number three, okay? Therefore, flee from idolatry. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, <laughs> isn't that great? In the, in the face of all this like sober reminder and warning, he just says, I love you guys. That's why I'm talking, I'm talking to you this way. <laughs> flee from idolatry. This is central to this whole section of chapters 8 to 10. And I'm going to read a pretty large section here and try to pull it all together because there's, it can be kind of confusing, but it really all hangs together. So look at verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So this is obviously the Lord's table, and we're going to participate in it together. What does it mean to participate in the Lord's table, to drink this cup. You are sharing in the blood of Jesus. You are saying, I need my sins forgiven and cleansed and washed away. And I am saying that Jesus is my Lord. I'm aligned with him and, and I'm benefiting from everything that he won on the cross. I'm participating in his life and death and resurrection for me as I drink this cup. The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a sharing in the body of Christ? 
He died that I might live. He was broken so that I might be healed. All of these things are what we say when we, we remind ourselves we, we eat and drink in this grace. We're participating in it because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel because the Passover is where this Lord's Supper came from. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? The reason why you would come with a, with a burnt offering, a sin offering, is because you need forgiveness. And you're participating in that. What do I imply then? That food offers to, uh, offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, of course not. So he had already said back in chapter 8, we won't go back there, but verses 4 to 6, he'd already said, there's, there's no real other gods. So he's not undoing what he's saying. He's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. No, no, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants, shares with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. So if you go to the temple of Zeus or Artemis or, you know, whatever, and you're participating in this meal there that is this cult scenario, you're acting as if Artemis is your God or Zeus is your God. You're participating in that God. You don't want to do that. It's demonic. Cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're after fidelity here. Are we stronger than he? Now, here's what I want to do is pull in verses 25 to 30 so that we can really get the picture of what's going on here. Look down at verse 25. I was originally going to handle this in the last point, but I think it'll be easier to handle it now. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Why? Because, as Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been, ordered, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. What is going on here? It can seem like Paul is contradicting himself. We're speaking out of both sides of his mouth, especially if you know back, you know, chapter 8, Tyler preached on it a few weeks back. He's not. He's addressing more than one scenario. Okay, so here's the point. Can you eat in a pagan temple and participate in that meal? No, because it's a participation in demons, demon worship. That's why you need to flee from idolatry back in verse 14. And remember the trade guild and the patron-client relationships and you know, the leverage on their souls to continue to just not make any waves. We've got to keep going because we, we don't want anybody to think that we're disparaging these gods and then they're going to kick us out of a job or whatever. You see? So can you eat in a pagan temple? No. Flee from idolatry. Can you eat what was sacrificed in the temple and then sold in the market? Because most meat was actually first in Corinth at least, sacrificed, and then the excess that wasn't eaten was taken to the market and sold. Can you eat that meat? Yes. Can you eat if it's going to cause a weaker brother to stumble? No. Chapter 8. Go back and listen to Tyler's message. Can they eat it at the home of a non-Christian who invites them? Yes. Can they eat it if, if it's announced at that dinner that this meat was offered in sacrifice? Like, you know, bring out the, the plate in honor of our patron deity. Ba-bum. Long live so-and-so. No. It just changed the game. It's also possible that, uh, you know, they had the open meals. We don't really get this, but they had open meals. Remember how Jesus went to the Pharisee's house in Luke 7 and the woman, the sinful woman came and anointed her, his, his feet? Like, who invited her? Meals were just more open. Sometimes you'd have people that just kind of visited and sat around the edges. That was normal. So you can imagine you go to somebody's house and then, you know, this Jewish background believer comes in and says, whispers in your ear, that was, that was offered in sacrifice. And maybe it's a weaker brother. Not going to eat. Okay, so either way, same thing. The answer is no. So one commentator summarizes it well, and he actually quotes someone who else who summarizes it well. Hopefully this will bring it all together. No eating in temples then. Now he, now he says you may buy and eat anything sold in the meat market. That's the difference. 
It's the difference between venue and menu. The place is off limits. The food isn't. Okay, so I'm sorry. It's a lot of detail there, but hopefully that makes sense of this section so that we can get to the bottom line here is that we need to flee from idolatry no matter what the cost. If it seems like too much, if fleeing from temptation seems too impossible, it's like too much, we need to remember no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. So we dare not stay. We dare not play with fire thinking too highly of ourselves. Don't think you won't get burned. Take heed lest you fall. So if, if you toy with sin, it's so dangerous, this process of the hardening of the heart. The duller you become and the more inclined you are to justify and rationalize and downplay your sin and blame shift, which means you're cutting yourself off from the flow of grace. It's the, it's the process of being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's a dangerous cycle. So maybe this morning you need that splash of cold water in your face to say, oh, I need to take heed. I need to run from these temptations I've been toying with, this idolatry, something that's taking God's place, first place in my heart. I need to just throw it off and run to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Listen to Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when we run from temptation and sin and to Jesus, then his grace strengthens us so that we can follow him running the race set before us for the good of our neighbors and the glory of God. Last point, go for good of neighbor and the glory of God following Jesus. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. This is their motto, these mottos. It's, it's also quoted in uh, chapter 6, and Tyler dealt with it back there. All things are lawful. They love to say that, but Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Okay, and so don't use your freedom as a license to be selfish and self-centered. We should be governed by the good of others, the good of our neighbors, whether they're our believing neighbors in the church or those outside the church that need our love as well. So this is a twisted kind of freedom speak that we would use our freedom to, to kind of feed our selfish desires and our so-called rights. You can see it's even a minimalist ethic, like, what's wrong with it, you know? No, the maximalist ethic of, I want to be helpful to my neighbor. I want to love my neighbor. I want to build up those around me. So Paul's heart, chapter 9, last week, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So look at down at verse 24. Paul exhorts us. Let no one seek his own good, but seek the good of your neighbor. And then he unpacks that further and brings it to a summary close in verses 31 to the end of the chapter and then the beginning of chapter 11. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we, we pull this verse out, don't we? Do you realize that the eat or drink is the whole idolatry thing? So whatever you do is what applies to all of our life. The eating and drinking was particularly whether you eat or drink at home, in a temple, like not in a temple, um, meat sacrificed to idols, whatever, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. You see how it's others-oriented, not selfish. It's cruciform living. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So our selfishness has to be killed, cruciformity, by the power of the cross. And other-centeredness is 
raised to life by the grace of Jesus as we embrace the cross at the center. We are so naturally selfish and bent to think of ourselves first. We don't like to consider others' interests ahead of our own. But the cross can kill that and raise this loving other-centeredness to life in our lives as we run to Jesus and then follow him for the good of our neighbors. So Jesus didn't take on flesh and blood to serve himself. He didn't go through the Garden of Gethsemane for his own advantage. Certainly didn't hang on a cross for his own comfort. He said, not my will, but yours be done for our eternal good. So if we know this totally undeserved, amazing grace, if we're filled up on it, we've got our eyes fixed on Jesus, the cross is the center of our lives, we don't deserve anything. He's given us everything in him. If we're filled up on that, then we are freed from the need to selfishly focus on ourselves first, and we can embrace this cruciform living for the good of neighbor and the glory of God. Glory of God, good of neighbor, totally inseparable. Two sides of the same coin. Shouldn't surprise us. What is the whole Old Testament summarized up? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So let's run, Bethel. Cruciform running, fleeing from idolatry and sin and temptation, seeking, running after the good of our neighbor, which is active, not passive, seeking to glorify God, not minimalist ethic, but maximalist ethic. How can God get most glory through my life? No compartmentalization. Well, you can have these areas, but not this. We should be governed by good of neighbor and glory of God in our goals. So there is grace for this race. God is faithful. Jesus is our forerunner. And so as we approach the table, let's fix our eyes on Jesus for more grace to run this race. I just encourage you to look at verses 16 to 18 while you're preparing your heart to participate in the table um, because they speak of what we participate in, what we share in. Just ponder all that is yours because of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus. All that you share in that's become yours um, by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you are so rich in mercy and grace that you've given us your son. While we were still sinners, you demonstrate your love by giving him to us and for us. We thank you that for all that is ours because of his broken body and his shed blood, and I pray that we would be reminded of all of that, that we would drink it in, that we would feed on the grace that is ours in Christ and be strengthened for the race ahead of us. Lord, where we are holding on to something that we need to drop and run from, would you please bring conviction and freedom? Help us to examine our hearts and not participate in this table in an unworthy manner. Help us to take consideration of even our brothers and sisters around us. Is there anything that we've done to offend a brother or sister? If we need to get that right, give us courage to, to get up and do it on the spot. And Lord, do feed us on your grace. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.